Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of She Med. I'm Sakai Parker, and today I'm here with Dr. Aaliyah Brown from Georgia Dermatology Partners. So, Dr. Brown, can you tell us a little bit about your specialty area um, and how long you've been practicing medicine? Sure. So I specialize in general and cosmetic dermatologist, dermatology. I have been practicing a little bit over 10 years. I'm born and raised and, and, and am a native Atlantan. I did my medical school training at Meharry Medical College, and then I went to residency at the University of Louisville, after which I did a cosmetic and laser fellowship uh, up in New Jersey with Dr. David Goldberg. Awesome. So why dermatology? Um, did you know you always wanted to be a dermatologist or what brought you to dermatology? Actually, in training and in medical school, I thought that I was going to go into plastic surgery. And I had a dear friend who was at Spelman with me that was several years ahead of me and was already in her dermatology residency. And she encouraged me to come up to her residency program and spend a, spend a month rotating. And she said, I really think you're going to like this specialty. I had zero exposure or really not much knowledge of how, um, you know, inclusive and what a variety the field of dermatology held. So I was thrilled to go up there and I got to go to work with them every day and just see how much variety was within the field. And I guess what I mean by variety is you can see people of all ages, you see all different backgrounds, you see women and men versus some specialties like OBGYN, you're dealing with uh, women patients only mm -hmm. um, and all ages. And there's a medical component, but also a lot of surgical, if that's what you want to do, and some cosmetic aspect of it. Mm -hmm. So it's a field that I think that you can even subspecialize within the field. Mm -hmm. So at what moment did you decide that you wanted to become a doctor? Um, and what experiences throughout your career affirmed that you made the right choice? Well, I always knew I wanted to go into medicine, probably at a young age, around nine or 10. Now, I had no idea what going into medicine even looked like at that young age, but my mom is a scientist. She's a microbiologist and has a PhD. So she uh, retired from the centers, of, centers for Disease Control. So I always had a kind of window or bird's eye view into science. And I always had a love and affinity for science growing up. I would even compete in some of our little science fairs through school. And also another big influence for me was probably my aunt who was a path, who was, is a retired pathologist. Um, and I didn't, again, know even what pathology was, but she was just someone I really admired and respected. She was very independent, outspoken, and um, just seemed to have it all together. So I always kind of looked up to her. Awesome. 
So you talked a little bit about some of your additional training. Could you um, just describe it a little bit more? Um, sure. So in, in residency, you know, those were, that's the bread and butter of the field in terms of learning about most dermatological diseases, how to treat them. You're learning about the different um, therapies that you use in terms of treating diseases. You're also getting some of your surgical training. But if you want to go deeper or specialize within dermatology, such as in cosmetics, for instance, there's a lot to learn. Um, and in specifically, I wanted to go into laser medicine. So the fellowship that I was able to do was one where I learned how to utilize different laser technologies to treat different kinds of conditions. Uh, whether it was acne scarring or uh, certain birthmarks that can be treated with laser. Mm -hmm. um, I also learned a lot about the fillers and injectables that people do for anti-aging therapy. And in, in, in residency, they don't really go in that much detail with the cosmetic aspect of dermatology. So I felt like if that was going to be something I wanted to specialize in and be somewhat of an expert, I needed to at minimum get additional training to hone that craft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely considering going into cosmetic derm myself. So this is mm -hmm. mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about your experience as a Black woman studying STEM in college and in medical school? Sure. So in college, I attended Spelman, which is a HBCU. So I definitely felt very, very nurtured. I mean, Spelman is obviously known as a liberal arts institution, but they do have a strong emphasis on the sciences. And there were a lot of people, even in my graduating class, that are currently doctors. Um, so it was very helpful to have excellent faculty and advisors that could kind of show you the roadmap to get to your goal. Mm -hmm. And then in medical school, you know, I was at Meharry and at that time, you know, Meharry does have certain residency programs, but some of the subspecialty, but they still, got you where you needed to go in terms of if you needed to at another school that didn't have the specialty, they would be able to help facilitate that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of my fondest memories and best mentors were when I was in medical school. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely a great experience. Got that. So... What do you think it means to be a black woman in a field that is still predominantly white male? I think it's very important. I mean, number one, people need to be able to identify with who is treating them. And it's important for young people to be able to see themselves, whether that's in medicine or whether that's in any career that they aspire to be. I also think that when people feel that they can relate to you, it can build trust. 
um, Mm -hmm. because there is a lot of distrust and mistrust of medicine. And it's important to be able to build that trust so that, you know, you can establish a relationship and also that helps with compliance of whatever therapy you're giving, whether that's in dermatology or even, you know, internal medicine where people need to take their blood pressure medicine. Mm -hmm. They need to feel like their physician cares about them and that they are, you know, doing right by them. I completely agree. And distrust is definitely one of the determinants of health disparities, in my opinion. That's probably the major determinant. So what have I mean, that and that and money, you know. Oh, yes. Financial and and access. Those are neck and neck. That. And I also think that this lack of knowledge from non-Black or non positions of well positions that were not of color just not having knowledge about people other than their own right that has been a major factor and I've noticed that during the pandemic also Mm -hmm. um so what have been some of your encounters with health disparities throughout your career whether it be through an interaction with a patient you've had or a friend or a family member or yourself I'll probably have encounters if not daily, weekly, I mean, and the biggest thing is probably access. Um, a lot of people that I see have seen other people. And even if they don't have insurance, they're so desperate to get help mm-hmm. that they will even, you know, pay out of pocket um, for a visit, which we obviously discount. But even when it comes to diagnosis and then on to treatment, sometimes, you know, the recommended treatment is not affordable, especially if they're uninsured. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's a big thing. And then even just compliance wise with um, being able to get a ride, you know, to come in for your appointments. I had a patient that had a life-threatening skin cancer Mm -hmm. and she was saying that she doesn't and she didn't have insurance so it was diagnosed and biopsied but when it came time to actually do the surgery she was saying she didn't know if she could afford to have the surgery Mm. and this is not really an optional type of skin cancer so it's deadly so that really struck me and you know in those circumstances we can write stuff off if you know, people have very, very extreme circumstances like that. But that's just of recent. I mean, that's been in the past probably month that 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 has happened. So, I mean, at least several times a month. Wow. I've also noticed that because dermatology is considered elective, which I don't think it is, but I've noticed that like dentistry, dermatology, some other subfields have been considered elective. And so people haven't been able to afford um, special care um, from physicians like yourself. So what are some ways that this country or the world could do better uh, with expanding access to your care? Well, I think you probably just said it. If It shouldn't fall under elective care. Um, dermatology and rheumatology aren't 
that far off. I mean, a lot of diagnoses that are in rheumatology overlap with that of dermatology. And those are systemic conditions and diseases that require therapy. Um, so I think the first thing is identifying that this isn't and then insurance, you know, giving reasonable coverage to people to allow them to seek treatment. Um, the same thing happens in mental health, you know, where certain things aren't covered. And it's really a shame that insurance companies are sort of dictating how patients are treated and what things that they cover. Uh, because, you know, the, the physicians, if anything, should dictate what's the best course of treatment. Because we're not getting any kind of compensation for writing said medication. We're writing said medication or recommending whatever therapy because we think that that's the optimal therapy to get them, you know, good treatment. Mm -hmm. But instead, we have other people dictating how we should treat, which is quite unfortunate. Absolutely. Because a lot of people are getting, um, you know, second or third line things that are not as good just because of a coverage issue. Mm -hmm. Or just feeling like they can't go because they don't. Absolutely. On their own. Yeah. Yep. So since the pandemic has forced all of us to recognize inequities in healthcare. How do you see yourself in the midst of this? Well, you know, I am first line, but not first line in terms of treating active COVID patients. But I definitely have tried to have a dialogue with my patients, especially those that are um, mistrustful of healthcare in general and just vaccination. I try to do it in a gentle way where I'm providing education without sort of lecturing. Um, and I just try to give them the facts. Mm -hmm. um, because uh, unfortunately, uh, people of color are way more at risk of dying from COVID. I mean, and that is factual. So I just kind of lay out the framework of that and have an open and honest discussion, you know, with my patients. Mm -hmm. How do you begin some of these difficult conversations? Well, a lot of times it comes up because we're all wearing masks and in dermatology, it's a very visual field. So I have to look at their face oftentimes, especially if whatever the thing is, is on their face, whether that be acne or we're doing a skin cancer screening. So oftentimes I'll remove their mask and I, well, I ask permission to remove their mask, obviously. And then I'd let them know that I'm vaccinated. And a lot of times they'll say, oh, you are, you weren't afraid. Hmm. Or they, or they may say, oh, me too. You know, so it will come up that way. Mm -hmm. Or they may say, well, I'm waiting. I'm just trying to see or I don't feel comfortable yet. And then I'll say, well, what don't you feel comfortable? Let's discuss, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, what I'm noticing is that pandemic has enabled you to not only be a physician, but also a community educator. Yeah. That? 
Absolutely. Because people have flat out asked me, what do I think? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and some of the medications that we have patients on, they also call back and say, can I take the shot while I'm on X, Y, and Z? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, we, we have that discussion at least daily with people. So how do you suggest that young people like myself become educators and try to promote health equity and health advocacy? Well, I mean, I think what you're doing right now is definitely a start. And you can even start to volunteer once COVID is over in health fairs or some of these community clinics, um, volunteering at the hospital. Um, These are all the areas, especially if you are into healthcare disparity that you get the best experience. Um, And then when you are having these interactions with patients, then that allows you the knowledge on the best way to advocate for them. Mm -hmm. And if medical school is in your thought process and that's your goal, if you definitely want to be an advocate, even thinking about getting a master's in public health and epidemiology, that is helpful because that's where a lot of the advocation comes from, knowing the numbers, knowing the statistics, knowing where grants need to be allocated, how funds need to be you know, distributed. That's actually funny because I was considering um, going to public health school before medical school to get an MPH in epidemiology, so. You know, I mean, here's the thing. There's no wrong way to do it. Mm -hmm. If you want to go straight through, you can. Now a lot of post-bac programs are master's programs too. Mm -hmm. And then some are just master's programs, but then you can still apply to medical school once you're done. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people that, uh, are in public health, some are MD and P, uh, MPH. Yeah, I've especially seeing, those at the CDC. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of a lot more young people or future physicians graduating with more than just an MD, whether it be yeah. an MPH or an MBA. Some even or, go into yeah. I was going to say some get a business degree. So I, I don't think it's, it's really just about what your lane is. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I could have really used the MBA, but I didn't know I was going to go into private practice and, you know, have to help run a business. Thankfully, I joined a group of physicians who are way more senior than me. So they have been instrumental in just, you know, acclimating me to the interworkings of running a practice but a lot of people they don't have that luxury they come out of medical school and residency and then they open up on their own from the ground up so you take a lot of it's a lot of um you know that's difficult you kind of learn by trial and error doing it like that yeah can you tell me a little bit more about um what it's like um owning and owning a private practice or working in a private practice Um, It's, it's, it, I sure can, you know, it's the most beautiful, but stressful thing ever. Um, You definitely feel a sense of independence, just kind of being able to 
execute what your vision is of a successful corporation versus if you're under an umbrella of a big corporate entity, you kind of have to get in line with what their mission statement is. Um, you know, it's five of us that are owners. We have four locations. We have six mid-level providers, which are nurse practitioners and physician assistants. And then we have over a hundred employees. Um, me, along with two of my partners are the managing partners, even though, you know, the five of us own it, but the managing partners kind of run the day-to-day -day operations in terms of having to deal with personnel or having to deal with, you know, if we need to purchase new equipment or, you know, upgrade the phone system or computer system, or, oh, you have to, you know, pave the parking lot. I mean, just every nuance you can think of that goes into keeping your business sound and solid, mm -hmm. we deal with on a daily basis. So the medicine and the patients are kind of like, you know, that's what we were trained to do, but the business part, that's kind of, we inherited that as part of the job. And that in and of itself is a full-time job, mm -hmm. but it's very rewarding. I mean, the three of us that do it, we love it. And we're very um, hands-on people anyway. So it works out. The other two, they're hands-off, but they're still very vocal about, you know, what, how they want the business to run. Mm -hmm. And we're like a family. So it also helps that if you're in business with people that you really care about and there's a wonderful mutual respect, regardless of how far in age you are with them. And you, because, you know, there's trust there. I always say being in business and ownership with people is like a marriage. Mm -hmm. So you definitely want to, and that's why a lot of people go in business by themselves because they may not have anybody that they trust that much mm -hmm. that they would be willing to go in business with. Mm. So I feel very lucky. Yeah. And that's very inspiring to me because I personally believe that science is something that's collaborative. It shouldn't be something that you're doing on your own. We're working together as a scientific community to push knowledge forward and to help others. You're exactly right. So we always say, you know, we feel like we're in residency again, because <laughs> if we have a difficult case, let's say, we can send, you know, it to one another if we're not in the same office, or I can say, hey, come in this room and look at this patient, you know, while they're here, mm -hmm. and we can kind of bounce ideas off if it's like a challenging case. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I love having that. And I always tell people, I said, you're getting a two for one today because you get two doctor's opinions. <laughs> <laughs> So how do you think that your identity as a Black person, as well as your knowledge about health disparities, inform your running of the practice, as well as your care? Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. I'm sorry. I had a little bit of background noise. My baby was crying in the background. You repeat that one more time. You said, how do I think my identity as a Black woman how do you think your identity as a black woman 
um, and your knowledge about health disparities inform your running of your practice and your care for patients? Oh, I think that I approach each patient like they are my relative and how I would want, um, you know, someone to treat my family. And I encourage my staff to do the same thing, regardless of what someone's financial standing or income is. And we always try to help someone and make whatever the diagnosis and treatment we want it to be something that's doable and treatable so that there's a silver lining for them Mm -hmm. um, versus they just feel like this is not attainable. So I think that we're very, very sensitive to everyone's different situations, regardless of what they are. A lot of times it's financial, but I have people from different religious backgrounds, uh, ethnicities. Um, some don't speak English. I mean, I, I, I have some people hearing impaired. Mm-hmm. I have it all. So we have to approach everyone and, you know, treat everyone with respect and also fairly. Absolutely. And that's what I hope to do too. I plan on continuing to practice my Spanish and study Spanish so I can at least begin to break some. Language. Yeah, I mean, I wish that I had taken Spanish. My niece is pre-med and she actually just finished filming and she actually did Spanish pre-med. So I will let you know how that works out for her once she, you know, does the MCAT and everything. But her, she's very, very fluent in Spanish. And I just wish I had done a form use I took French so I don't really use that a bunch in medicine but um if you have some uh a Spanish background that will take you that you will definitely use it definitely gonna take that in mind so my next question for you is why do you think our representation matters in a field that wasn't exactly built with black women in mind Well, I definitely think it matters because if we are not caring about um, what different conditions look like on our skin and, you know, emphasizing that, then it's easy for it to get lost. Mm -hmm. And it's not that other people don't care, but it's almost the type of thing where if it's not affecting you as much, you may not um, notice it as much. So there's certain conditions I'm sure I probably see a lot of because maybe they affect more skin of color than different conditions. And I think that certain skin conditions look different on every complexion. Mm -hmm. So it's important to be able to recognize how X, Y, and Z rash looks on every single skin type. Mm -hmm. And that's why even where you do your training is important. You want to be able to do your training somewhere where you see every type of skin versus if you only see one type of skin, you're only going to know how certain conditions present in one complexion. I definitely notice that training is extremely important because 
I've seen myself in textbooks how only one one type of vitiligo is shown, for example, in right. the textbook, or one way acne is shown. Yeah, and I even tell my patients of color sometimes, I say, if you Google this diagnosis, it's not going to look anything like what you have. So even from the beginning, I say, because X, Y, and Z looks a little bit different in skin of color than it does in other skin types. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's extremely dangerous to not know what it looks like on Mm -hmm. itself, because then that causes misdiagnoses. Well, yeah, misdiagnoses, delayed diagnosis. And that's why where people train matters. You know, a lot of residences are in big cities, so they get everybody. But if you're doing a residency in, you know, a smaller place with not a diverse demographic, then you get partial picture. You get a partial picture. Mm -hmm. Definitely. If you could give yourself, give your younger self, a piece of advice before embarking on this journey to medicine, what would you tell her? I would say um, be patient and just stay committed to your goal. Um, I think that when you're young, you just ready for everything to hurry up and be done and you're anxious to get to the finish line but there is a lot of growth within every milestone of the process. So it's almost like you got to respect the process because at every point you're actually learning something more. I also even tell young people, don't add up all the years of school and residency. I said, you have to add, you have to break down your training into segments because it's way more doable when you approach it in that manner versus I have 16 years of school left. Like, no, (laughs) that sounds horrifying. So you just have to kind of say, okay, this is, you know, phase one, um, phase two and so forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely think a lot of people try to scare themselves out of starting the journey by thinking about how long it's gonna take over time. Yes, I I would not that because I always tell and I tell even my children and I tell my niece who's Mm pre-med, this sounds bad, but um, it's true. I tell them you're going to be older way longer than you're going to be younger. (laughs) (laughs) If you're lucky, right? That's the goal to get old. So I, my point in that is these, t- these temporary sacrifices while you're young seeing, you know, oh my gosh, I'm missing X, Y, and Z, or oh, I have to study um, so much and everybody else is doing, you know, whatever, whether they're traveling or going to these parties and I go, you know, you're going to be able to do that and then some, and then you're saving people's lives. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be older, meaning 25 and older way longer so I tell them it's a temporary sacrifice for a very very big gain later and that's how they got to approach it versus you know oh I'm missing everything because they're all you know 23 and 20 
four and they're getting out of school and a lot of people graduating, you know, they're taking years off and they're traveling and they're not having to buckle down and really study for postgraduate testing and whatnot. But I tell them, you know, this is temporary and even your schooling and training is temporary. Yeah. So what has been the most rewarding part about being a physician? Well, I think just being able to impact people in a way that gives them, you know, hope, helps them feel better about themselves, giving them a better self-image, um, self-esteem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people take for granted how certain skin conditions can really cause people to be depressed, cause them to miss out on job opportunities. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably been the most rewarding thing, being able to just make people feel better about their situation and themselves as a whole. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I also think that one of the reasons why I'm super interested in dermatology is because you're not only helping someone um, with their self-esteem, of course, and their self-image, but you're also educating them because what I've noticed is a lot of Black people or a lot of people of color don't understand how important, um, you know, a skincare routine can be or wearing sunscreen is important despite how much melanin we may or may not. Yeah, that, that's a daily discussion for me. I, ha I, I have to tell them, you know, we have to get away from the whole Black don't crack thing because it gives this false sense of security that, oh, I don't have to really do much or protect my skin mm -hmm. because I'm going to be ageless and I'm not going to have skin issues. Yeah. And just the education about, you know, we too can get skin cancer mm -hmm. because if you're not even of the mind frame that I even need to do anything skin related, they're not possibly going to have the knowledge and education to know, you know, I still am at risk as well so yeah absolutely this is why i think that dermatology should not be something that's just elective because it's extremely important it's extremely holistic in my opinion because there's so many implications to not receiving the care you need. absolutely i mean there's a lot of delay in diagnosis and that happens across healthcare with people of color um just because they're not even having the knowledge that they can have a skin cancer. Mm -hmm. So that's why a lot of times people say, oh, well, it's the most fatal in people of color. A lot of that is because of there's a delay in diagnosis, mm -hmm. especially like acral melanoma, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, number one, it's a more aggressive site, but number two, a lot of people don't know what it is when it comes up. Mm -hmm. that's how Bob Marley died I, you know who Bob Marley is I know who that is I didn't yeah. I didn't know that, that yeah he had an acral melanoma on his toe and he thought that it was a bruise underneath his toenail oh. and you know he clearly had the financial you know ability to seek medical care but he had no idea of what melanoma even was yeah so, yeah. 
Yeah. An older cousin of mine um, died of melanoma. So I yeah. yeah. how important it is. Mm-hmm. Pay attention to yourself and listen to your body. Absolutely. So what my last question for you is um, what and current positions that make sure that you're caring for others holistically and in a way that's culturally competent. You said what goals do they need to set? Yes, what goals do we need to set? Well, I think the first thing is making sure that you're communicating with your patients adequately. Um, and I know that sounds like a basic thing, but a lot of times I feel like in medicine, physicians, and I'm not speaking, I, I shouldn't say this, but this has been what has been conveyed to people are just the physicians. You cut out. I can't hear you anymore. Saying things that maybe the patient doesn't stand. And I just feel like I'm just telling you. Hello? Me? I can hear you now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You may have to repeat what <laughs> It wasn't, it wasn't you, it was me. I was getting in the car on my way to that meeting and I have, I think it switched off of my Wi-Fi when I got in the car. Can um, you hear me clearly now though? Yes, it's much better. Yes, I'll start over. I said, I think it needs to be a conversation between the patient and the physician versus is, you know, the physician is talking at the patient, the patient isn't really maybe even clear or doesn't have an understanding about their treatment. I encourage my patients to be advocates in their care. Mm -hmm. I also encourage them if they have questions, you know, I want it to be a manner in which they feel like that, you know, they can approach me and ask me whatever. If they don't agree with them, I want them to tell me why that is so we can discuss what their concerns are versus, you know, they leave without questions being answered and then they come back and haven't done whatever the therapy was because they had reservations, but I didn't even know because we weren't communicating. Did that come through? Did you hear that? Yes, I heard that. Yes. And and I guess even what we've tried to sort of say our mission is within my practice is we want to be, you know, their partners in their health. Mm -hmm. We're a team, meaning us with the patient. Got it. Okay. 
Thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Um, and I'll tell them this is my Oh, you're you're welcome. Oh, I'm sorry. I were you, I didn't hear you talk. It cut out as soon as you were moving on to the next point. I'm so sorry about that. No, I was gonna say you're welcome. I think there's like a delay. There's a delay with, I think there's a delay with the zone. Yeah, I, I think that's happening, but that's okay. Can you still hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? I can hear you now. For inviting me to the interview. Thank yeah. you so much for coming on today. I've learned so much. I can hear you good. Can you hear me okay? Invitation. Yes. Post it on everything and good luck to you. Let me know if there's anything you need in the future. Thank you so much. And I look forward to meeting oh. you when I get to Atlanta. <laughs> I'm excited. All right. Okay. Thank you. Have a Thank good you. week. You too. Bye. Okay.